it's the 17th of November and you're listening to Copy Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Temur Beg, Chief Economist, welcoming you to our 36th episode. Today, we will talk about currencies, especially the US dollar, the Chinese yuan, and central bank digital currencies. On episode 28 of Copy Time, we had spoken with Grayscale's Michael Sonnenschein about Bitcoin and other private digital currencies very exciting area of innovation and focus of investors these days. But the area of central bank digital currency is also undergoing historic developments with really far-reaching implications. Today, we will hear about that from a leading expert, which brings me to our guest for today, Dr. Iswar Prasad, Tulani Senior Professor of Trade Policy at Cornell University. Iswar is also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, where he holds the New Century Chair in International Economics. He was previously chief of the Financial Studies Division in the International Monetary Fund's Research Department, and before that was the head of the IMF's China Division. Iswar has written several topical and insightful books, including Gaining Currency, The Rise of the RMB, and The Dollar Trap, How the U.S. Dollar Tightened Its Grip on the Global Finance. Dr. Iswar Prasad, a real pleasure to have you on Kobe Time. Welcome to our show. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on, Temur. Great. Uh, I'd like to start with your view on the 2021 global economic outlook. Uh, in a recent article in Project Syndicate, you expressed worries about the long-term economic scarring uh, across the world, and you were also gravely concerned about the outlook for emerging markets in particular. Is for why are you so worried when at least the latest data show global trade is rebounding, China is doing very well, and some of the North and South Asian countries are also turning around? And the last few days, we've also seen very promising developments at the vaccine front. Wouldn't these drivers pull us up strongly next year? Certainly, things are looking a little better since I wrote that article, which was a few weeks ago. Um, The reality on the ground, however, is that in many um, countries around the world, the virus does seem to be um, uh, kicking in with a vengeance. And I suspect it's going to be very difficult in many of the countries in the world where the um, virus still remains a problem for economic activity to kick back in with any significant uh, momentum. Now, across the world, the manufacturing sector seems to have held up somewhat better, and we are seeing that reflected in goods trade in particular. Um, So that is certainly an encouraging sign. Um, But I think as we look to um, the economies in particular that are driven largely by services sector um, output, um, that part of the um, economy does not seem to be doing well um, in practically any major economy. Now, you've mentioned China, which, of course, uh, is a sort of uh, shining beacon um, in a very dark uh, um, environment. In China's case, I think we are definitely seeing um, the economy firing, um, if not on all cylinders, on most of them. Um, In the initial stages of the recovery, it looked like we were seeing something like in 2008, 2009, after the global financial crisis, where there was a spurt of credit financed investment that was pulling the economy along. It looks like in China right now, consumption um, uh, as proxied by retail sales, and many other measures of um, uh, household consumption also seem to be doing a lot better, which is certainly encouraging. However, I don't think 
China is going to pull the rest of the world economy along as it did in the period after the global financial crisis. Certainly in a pure accounting sense, China is going to be the key driver of whatever little global growth there is this year uh, and probably into next. But China is not going to have a massive investment-led growth spurt, which would have been a boon for many economies that are commodity exporters that export other goods to China. Um, Right now, China seems to be experiencing a manufacturing boom that satisfies both export markets and domestic markets in terms of the demand for uh, consumption goods. Um, So that is what seems to be bearing Chinese growth along. And while it will certainly help in terms of the global economic recovery, I don't think it's going to pull the world um, as it did in the period after the global financial crisis. And then as one starts looking at other economies around the world, we just got some positive data from Japan. Now with the vaccine in prospect, certainly things will start looking better. Uh, But I think this may happen only next year. And the sort of damage that we could see uh, to small and medium enterprises, to the service sector before all of that happens, I fear is going to have a pretty significant um, scarring effect on many economies. Now, of course, um, economies around the world, including emerging market economies, are undertaking aggressive stimulus measures. Even emerging market economies have started putting into place quantitative easing operations. And of course, they are undertaking fiscal um, support as well. But I think what is really crucial, especially for emerging market economies, is really to get fiscal policy right, to start thinking about fiscal policy measures that provide support to the demand side of the economy, but also uh, in terms of investment. And unfortunately, life is not fair. Um, Advanced economies can get away with large amounts of fiscal and monetary stimulus, high levels of public debt. For emerging market economies, while financial markets seem to be relatively sanguine about the buildup in debt so far, uh, markets could turn on a dime. So I think it's going to be important, even in these very difficult circumstances, for emerging market governments to show that they're willing to take some other measures that are necessary to get their economies back on track, not just macroeconomic stimulus, but many of the other reforms that these countries have needed for a long time. It's where I want to flesh that issue out because that's a very critical question. So for emerging markets, two problems. One is you don't have the wherewithal like your uh, reserve currency counterparts to spend a lot of money. Uh, and the second issue is that you have to be careful with whatever resources you have that you spend it at the most impact areas. So that composition of spending, uh, what is your view? I mean, are the emerging markets spending their stimulus in the right area? Are they doing the right thing to stimulate demand? Or would you prefer they do things somewhat differently than what they're doing right now? A number of economies, uh, emerging market economies, do seem to be doing the right thing on the demand side. Certainly, as one looks around the world, there are um, uh, targeted programs that could be uh, improved. Um, One can think about better ways of getting money into the hands of those with higher marginal propensities to um, consume. Um, But I think the real issue is whether um, the spending will also affect the supply side in a positive way. Um, One can think about measures that uh, um, boost public investment. Again, uh, it has to be well targeted and in in the context of a broader program, but public investment measures are important in terms of boosting um, employment as well as the longer term productivity of these economies. 
And I think that is the sort of measure that would provide some more confidence uh, to those who provide the financing for these countries. Um, for countries that have high domestic saving rates, it's less a problem. But for countries that are more reliant on foreign investors in particular, um, uh, largely those with current account um, deficits, I think it's going to be important to retain the, um, or at least build the trust of foreign investors. And that comes only with measures um, where it's clear that the government is not going to undertake um, um, wasteful expenditures on the demand side and will also balance those expenditures to some extent um, to the supply side through uh, public investment. But again, all of this has to be in the context of the, getting these economies on the um, right track. If you look at Latin America, for instance, there has been some aggressive um, action on the fiscal side, but the tax base in these countries remains very low. Public debt levels are already very high. Um, there is a great deal of political instability. The institutions are not trusted. And in that environment, even if uh, foreign investors are willing to provide some short-term financing to, um, to these countries, um, that could change very quickly, leaving these economies very vulnerable. No, we, we share those concerns. I mean, we've seen this year from Argentina to Turkey, the issue of external financing has been certainly there despite all this record injection of liquidity. And even in our backyard as far, I mean, we look at Indonesia very closely, which uh, relies on foreign investors for its local currency debt market financing. Um, and then there is India, which probably doesn't have as much reliance as Indonesia, but still has had issues related to twin deficit. And these countries have certainly rolled out a bunch of reforms, but at the same time, I don't think have fully convinced investors that their uh, fiscal and monetary stimulus measures are you know, absolute best practice uh, so far. So, so for us also, 2021, even though if we're not worried about an outright crisis like the way we see in Latin America and perhaps in EMEA, we still have lingering concerns for Asia going into 2021. Um, it's interesting that you brought up the case of India, Timur, because certainly um, while India is not uh, a paragon of reforms by any measure, the fact that the government has been willing to undertake some reforms that it could have undertaken in good times when the stars were better aligned rather than these difficult uh, circumstances is certainly an issue. But the fact that they were at least willing to move forward on some labor market reforms, opening up of the um, capital account to make um, foreign direct investment in some sectors of the economy. Um, those sorts of things are, I think, going to pay off in the long run. And the willingness of political leaders to pay the political price, even in these difficult circumstances, I think is um, going to be an important factor. You know, Swar, I mean, I am sort of take to heart your point. And I had always uh, noticed that even countries like uh, Indonesia and India in the last decade or so, one issue that used to be a massive thorn on the side of politics was fuel price adjustment. You remember those days when you know countries would struggle to raise fuel prices and there'll be protests on the streets. They'd do it anyway when the current account was going uh, toward an unsustainable area and then you know life would go on and it would turn out that people are actually okay with the higher fuel prices. Now in the last five years, this has become a non-issue. I mean, countries have more or less gone for automatic fuel ad price adjustment. And it turns out that the political cost is actually not that high as polit politicians had worried about. So I, I, I hope that, you know, as, as you correctly pointed out, that countries uh, sometimes do the tough things during bad times. Uh, it might seem politically uh, challenging, but maybe we should give the public credit that uh, they're probably able to withstand the, the transition cost to those uh, good quality reforms uh, that are so badly needed. 
Um, it's where I want to switch a little bit. It's been nearly two weeks uh, since the U.S. elections, and I'm just going to assume that uh, Joe Biden will be taking over in a seamless manner the mantle of presidency uh, in, in the third week of January next year. Um, so walk us through your view on how the Biden administration would deal with, um, I mean, I was going to say Asia in general, but what I really mean is China, because China-U.S. relationship has been basically at the forefront on issues related to trade and national security and geopolitics. So uh, maybe briefly walk us through your view on how the incoming Biden administration would deal with China. The baseline has shifted in a very um, important way, I think, for the um, incoming Biden administration. Um, we're going to start off with a level of um, uh, antagonism and hostility between the two countries. That will not be very easy to um, ratchet down. Um, and of course, the political environment in the US, um, even with the new administration coming in, is that you know there is a lot more receptivity both in Congress as well as in the um, American heartland for a more antagonistic approach to China rather than a more um, cooperative one. Having said that, I um, suspect, um, and I'm quite sure that we will see a shift in strategy and tactics of a Biden administration, uh, which I think will be um, far more reluctant to use the sort of punitive um, sanctions, trade and otherwise that the Trump administration has used uh, as a bludgeon to try to um, bring China into line with um, its desired um, policies. Um, I think um, on issues such as trade um, and economic policies more broadly, the tensions will continue to persist. Um, and there is going to be um, even more suspicion of China um, given um, the recent um, uh, signing of the um, RCEP. Um, of course, that remains to be ratified, but on the assumption that that does happen, I think there will be um, further um, suspicion that China is trying to increase its influence in Asia at the expense of the US. So I think a Biden administration will um, take a different approach trying to um, reassure countries in the region and beyond um, that it has their backs and that it will um, act as a counterweight to China um, in different parts of the world, including Asia. Whether that is viewed as a credible commitment or not is uh, unclear. Um, but setting aside the economic and uh, um, uh, trading practices of China aside, there are some major priorities for the um, Biden administration. Um, including um, climate change and a few other um, issues where I think there is a potential meeting of minds between the two um, countries' leaders. And perhaps um, those will be areas in which um, the two countries will start working together because ultimately it's going to be very difficult for a Biden administration to make progress on its um, uh, climate agenda without buying from other countries, including um, uh, China. That could also offset some of the domestic political pressure that will no doubt arise if um, the new administration gets aggressive um, in those areas. Um, so I think we are setting up for a period where there is um, an elevated level of tension between the two countries on economic and trade issues. But in other areas, they start cooperating um, somewhat more. 
the wild card in all of this, of course, is um, uh, other a set of other issues, including human rights and potential um, uh, areas of geopolitical conflagration, where the um, interests of the two sides are clearly um, at odds with each other. So if, for instance, we have uh, um, an escalation of uh, um, circumstances around Taiwan, for instance, um, that could set the two countries on a collision course that will be a little hard to avoid. So it's not going to be, um, uh, you know, all um, uh, peas and roses between the two countries, but uh, um, I think at least the overt hostilities, we will see something of a de-escalation in the coming months and years. Is there any space left for the Trans-Pacific Partnership to get re-energized? That would be a logical presumption given that the um, RCEP um, allows China essentially to um, to uh, determine the rules under which it trades with um, a large group of countries that are also important trading partners of the US. But I think the political um, interest um, in the TPP um, is not quite there in the Biden administration. To some extent, it will it will depend on who the um, dramatis personae are, who the key appointments are at um, uh, Treasury, the U.S. Trade Representative Office, and so on. But I think um, it's going to be very difficult for a Biden administration to get the uh, U.S. back into uh, TPP mode. I really don't think there is enough support for that um, broadly in the Democratic Party, especially on the progressive side, but even on the more centrist side. Well, I guess in, with, with that narrowness of space, uh, I guess, you know, there's room for China to act. And I guess that's what we're seeing as we speak. I really didn't think that the countries like Japan and Australia would sign up on a trade deal like this, um, that they went along with it, even after India's departure. So I think RCEP is a pretty large uh, strategic and symbolic victory for China. Um, it's where uh, I want to switch uh, to the meat of our discussion. You are my go-to guy on currencies, and I want to pick your brain on uh, the key currencies around the world. Uh, you have written about um, issues on the U.S. dollar. You've actually written a very good book on that. And uh, we need to sort of go back to the basics issue. <laughs> U.S. runs large current account deficits, large fiscal deficits. In fact, they're getting very, very large as we speak. Uh, and we've seen, especially during the Trump years, but even before that, weaponization of the green, greenback, right? Uh, transactions between two non-U.S. entities coming under U.S. sanctions simply because a dollar was used in that transaction. And yet, uh, we, and by we, I mean all companies and businesses around the world, keep treating the dollar as a safe asset. We denominate our trade and financial instruments in dollars and settle financial transactions with dollars. So is there no change or no end to the supremacy of the dollar? Again, it seems a very logical proposition that the dollar's role should um, become diminished over time. As you pointed out, the, um, the US is running very large um, budget deficits. The um, public debt levels uh, at the federal level are growing um, very fast. Um, the Federal Reserve has expanded its balance sheet um, uh, enormously. Um, and then if you look at um, the implications for other countries, um, certainly the U.S. has used not just direct, uh, but indirect sanctions, um, and it uses its um, power 
um, given to it through the dollar-based international financial system to push forward its geopolitical and strategic um, uh, objectives through those sanctions. So, of course, there are countries around the world that are very eager to escape the grasp of the US dollar. But the remarkable thing is that in the last five years, um, the dollar's role as a reserve currency, as a payment currency, has actually become even more dominant than it was before. Now, in the period right after the global financial crisis, um, the dollar share of global reserves did um, fall modestly relative to that um, of the euro, which increased modestly. Um, but in the last five years in particular, um, in the aftermath of the eurozone debt crisis, um, the euro has been um, falling behind very sharply. There was a period um, around 2015 when, in fact, the euro had become the most important uh, payment currency in the world, according to some measures. Um, if you took out all the trade within the eurozone that, of course, is denominated in euros, uh, it would have been less of a margin, but still the euro would have come out slightly ahead. That has changed. The dollar is now once again the dominant payment currency in the world. And as you alluded to, in the last five years, we've also seen the dollar has once again become by far the dominant funding currency. Um, its share of global foreign exchange reserves um, today is almost exactly where it was in the quarter before the global financial crisis, that is in the um, second quarter of 2008. Um, so I think what we are seeing, um, interestingly enough, is not a demise of the dollar, but a significant rejiggering of the positions of the second tier currencies um, in which um, I will add the euro, uh, because the euro did look at one point like a world beater, but it is not quite proven to be that. So if you look at various measures um, of, um, say, the renminbi's ascendance, modest as that has been, that share has come not out of the dollar, but out of other currencies, especially the euro. Um, so what we are seeing is that um, despite the um, strong desire of the rest of the world to escape the clutches of the dollar, um, there doesn't really seem to be any viable alternative. Um, if you look at the dollar's uh, um, role as a reserve currency, once again, one might argue, as I think you were suggesting, that the safety of the um, ostensible safe, safest asset in the world, which is the um, US Treasury security, um, that should certainly be in question. Um, but again, that is a very large market. It is expanding um, uh, enormously, um, and it remains by far the most liquid market in the world. Certainly, if you had um, uh, Eurozone bonds um, uh, as part of the mutualization within the Eurozone, that could start playing a, uh, a bigger role in terms of providing safe assets. But the reality, again, is that um, the Eurozone, Japan, Switzerland, um, these reserve currency economies are not willing to provide net safe assets to the rest of the world like the US is, because they are very eager to resist currency appreciation. So, of course, there is a fair bit of money going into Japanese government bonds as safe assets, but Japan turns around and um, uh, intervenes in foreign exchange markets, uh, depending on the period, but buys up a lot of US Treasury securities. So again, over the last five years, if you look at the net provision of safe assets, the US is an even more dominant position um, than if you looked at just the gross provision of uh, um, safe assets. Um, 
And U.S. policy also feeds into this. So um, in the aftermath of the um, COVID pandemic, of course, many uh, emerging markets came under stress and there was um, a need for dollar um, liquidity around the world. So there are the five swap lines that the Fed has maintained with the major central banks around the world, the advanced economy central banks since the global financial crisis. And just as in that period, another eight economies, um, mostly uh, small advanced economies, um, including Singapore, received um, swap lines from the Fed. But in addition, the Fed indicated that it would provide dollar funding to countries that had um, collateral in the form of US Treasury securities. So in other words, if a central bank could use its reserve holdings that were denominated in US dollars and held in US treasury securities, that could be used as collateral to get a dollar funding line from the New York Fed. So if you think about the incentives that are going to be uh, faced by um, central bank reserve managers in the coming years, emerging markets know they need more reserves in order to protect themselves against currency and capital flow volatility. They know that if they buy US treasury securities using those um, reserves, they're going to have access to dollar funding. So what is this all going to do when the dust settles? If anything, it's going to make the dollar even stronger um, as a reserve currency. Um, so this is a very long-winded way of saying, no, I don't really see any prospect of the dollar's um, uh, significant shifting role in global finance. As a payment currency, I can see um, that its dominance might be nibbled away at the margin if the renminbi starts playing a bigger role in international payments. As a reserve currency, or more importantly, as a safe haven currency, I really don't see any realistic prospect of a challenge to the dollar. Absolutely fascinating. That was such a nice way of sort of crystallizing the drivers behind the, the dollar's uh, sort of demand, if you will. And then it's not just what the rest of the world is doing, but also what the U.S. is doing. So I appreciate that very much, Iswar. Uh, and you, you ended your discussion by alluding to the Chinese RMB making possibly some potential progress as a payment currency, but not necessarily as a financing currency. Although China has been doing quite a bit of debt diplomacy, but my understanding is those loans to uh, developing countries around the world are also denominated in U.S. dollars. Um, but... Uh, Generally speaking, I mean, it's been almost a decade since China began its push toward internationalizing the RMB. They got the currency included in the SDR. What's your uh, report card on that uh, process? So the period from 2010, which is when the Chinese government started aggressively uh, pushing for the RMB to take on a larger international role. Between that year, 2010 and 2015, there had been being made quite significant progress. Now, remember, it was starting from uh, basically a zero share of global payments, a zero share of global reserves, um, and it rose quite rapidly, especially given that it's a country that does not have a fully open capital account, um, that does not have a fully market-determined exchange rate, although in the last couple of years, uh, the currency does seem to be floating a lot more freely than it was the case before. But after 2015, things changed. Um, what happened, of course, is that um, uh, the Chinese economy um, seemed to be hitting a road bump, the stock market um, deflated, and there was this um, um, set of factors, including the anti-corruption drive, concerns about further renminbi depreciation, all of which led to a surge of capital outflows, 
um, starting in late 2014 through about um, early 2016. And the Chinese government responded um, by tightening up on capital controls, um, uh, trying to manage the exchange rate much more. And that I think created a significant loss of credibility, which has hurt the renminbi's progress to this day. So virtually every one of these indicators, such as the amount of um, um, renminbi deposits outside um, China, um, the amount of um, renminbi denominated bonds being issued offshore, uh, the renminbi's role as a payment currency, as a reserve currency, all of these essentially flatlined since 2015. Um, now, there are things that I think um, are in the works that could lead to the renminbi becoming more important as a payment currency. Um, uh, for instance, um, the cross-border interbank payment system um, that China has set up, I think, could um, increase the renminbi's role as a payment currency. And with China's growing um, weight in the world economy and world trade, I think it will happen over time. The People's Bank of China, the PBOC, does seem um, very eager to keep its hands off the exchange rate. There's been very little intervention um, in the foreign exchange markets over the last um, uh, year and a half. Uh, in 2019, there were a couple of periods when the renminbi depreciated quite significantly. The same thing happened earlier this year, right after the pandemic started in, uh, originated in um, uh, China. Um, in the last um, uh, two or three months, we've seen the renminbi appreciate quite significantly, but we really haven't seen the PBOC step in um, in any big way. So I think it is gaining some credibility as a more market determined um, currency. On the capital account opening as well, we have seen um, additional progress, both in terms of um, inflows and outflows being liberalized. Um, but I think ultimately um, what matters for um, investors who think about um, a safe haven currency is whether they have um, access to a broad array of uh, financial instruments, especially fixed income assets, um, whether they have the confidence that, can, that they can move in and out of those assets uh, reasonably easily, both in terms of liquidity of those markets and um, openness of the capital account, and ultimately about the institutional framework of the country as well. Um, on all of these dimensions, there is some progress, but the least progress, of course, is in terms of the institutional framework, um, um, uh, whether the present configuration of um, the political system, the rule of law is going to inspire the confidence of foreign investors, um, I think remains to be seen. My sense is that that is not quite the case. Um, of course, um, with foreign investors having much greater access to um, both government and corporate fixed income markets in China, and with um, Chinese stock markets and uh, bond markets getting a greater weighting um, in uh, global indexes, there is some passive money coming into China. There is some active money also coming into China, but certainly not in the droves one would expect given the positive interest differential in favor of China, the fact that the economy is doing um, better. Um, so I think what we will see is a continued gradual expansion of the renminbi's role as a payment currency. Um, if China continues with its um, financial and capital market liberalization and institutional reforms, China could become a somewhat more 
important reserve currency. But I think it's going to be firmly um, in the second tier of um, um, global currencies and won't in any serious way challenge the dollar's dominance in any of these dimensions. Iswar, do you see any progress in denominating trade in RMB? I mean, I, I recall there was this push towards, you know, having certain exchanges in China where prices of metals, for example, would get quoted in RMB. There were some swap lines with Asian uh, central banks where the view was that the swap line would be used to denominate a trade in RMB. Uh, but uh, I've seen those announcements, but I've not really seen any data to suggest that, you know, the overwhelming denomination of trade being in US dollar, that has changed in any meaningful way. So do you see even in the margin any progress? So in the initial period of the Renminbi's internationalization, it looked like um, a great deal of trade was beginning to be denominated in Renminbi. By great deal, I mean somewhere in the range of 2 to 3% of world trade and uh, around um, 10% of Chinese trade. But it turned out that that was largely because it was a play on the Renminbi, which at the time looked like it could go only one way, which was uh, up. Um, since then, we've heard these uh, um, uh, dramatic sounding announcements, for instance, about certain oil contracts being denominated in Benminbi, um, certain futures contracts on the Shanghai uh, exchange, um, certain other commodities contracts being denominated in Benminbi, um, and of course, these um, uh, swap lines um, that the PBOC has set up with um, now nearly 38 central banks around the world, in addition to bilateral currency arrangements with countries like Korea, Japan, and so on. All of these provide a good foundation for the renminbi to start becoming more important in international payments, but they don't seem to have gotten a great deal of traction yet. Um, I think um, it still remains the case that using a vehicle currency like the US dollar is just much cheaper and much easier for um, financial market participants, for traders, and so on. Um, and I think the, um, the fact that there is a great deal of dollar liquidity sloshing around, while the amount of renminbi liquidity is uh, much lower, especially in offshore markets, and the concern that the uh, whims of the PBOC might lead to volatility in the amount of liquidity available offshore, um, I think has raised some significant um, concerns. Um, in addition to the liquidity, of course, the dollar remains a very cheap uh, uh, funding currency given the configuration of interest rates right now. So um, I'm told that even many exporters in um, China prefer to receive payment um, in dollars because um, they've taken on some degree of um, dollar-denominated foreign currency debt. Um, so if you put this all together, I think the Chinese government is certainly taking some moves in the right direction, um, but it hasn't quite achieved um, that uh, takeoff point yet, where the renminbi starts being seen as a viable payment currency for a broad swath of transactions. No, the point that you made about the cheapness of dollar funding, I think, is very well taken as far. We see company after company in China, even in the middle of all this, trying to tap the dollar market uh, ostensibly because they think that, you know, that currency risk is uh, manageable and they would much rather take the uh, low U.S. dollar denominated funding cost on their balance sheet. So far, as far we have talked about currencies in the context of the normal economics, but there is also... 
rather profound changes happening in the world of currencies. And you have been doing quite a bit of research in that. So I want to talk a bit about central bank digital currencies. So a few months ago, you joined a large group of researchers to put out a Brookings paper on the design choices of CBDCs. And I want to talk about the main points of the paper, but first, I'd like you to comment on what you consider to be the most serious CBDC initiatives in the world at this moment. Well, this is my opportunity, Taimur, to let the world at large know that that will be the subject of my next book, something I've been working on um, and trying to think about what um, central bank digital currencies might mean for um, the worlds of money and finance, and especially um, from the lens of central banking. And there is a lot of um, interest in the concept. And I think the interest comes from two or three dimensions. There are many countries that are thinking about CBDCs as a way of promoting financial inclusion. Um, for a country like Sweden, um, where the use of um, physical currency, that is cash, has almost disappeared, and where the private payment systems is doing a perfectly good job of mediating retail transactions. I think the um, uh, Riksbank wants to make sure um, that there is a viable um, non-private uh, payment um, option that serves as a backup um, just in case there is some trouble with the private um, sector payments infrastructure. Um, but in fact, it turns out there is um, one country that has already rolled out a CBDC um, nationwide, and that is the Bahamas, which has gotten started with the sand dollar. Um, and there are initiatives around the world. I spoke about financial inclusion being key priority. Some years ago, Ecuador had a, um, an experiment that did not work very well. Uruguay had um, a version of a CBDC that it rolled out um, about a year ago, and it had a successful six-month experiment. And that is a very basic form of uh, CBDC in the form of e-money, just like um, uh, the sort of app on your phone that you would load money onto. That's basically what the Uruguayan uh, e-peso um, was. Um, but what... Um, the Rix Bank is, uh, has been contemplating and has started doing some experiments on is really an account-based CBDC where you would have, uh, in principle, um, CBDC accounts that are maintained with the um, central bank. Now, of course, Sweden is an important economy, but the one major economy that has rolled out um, trials of a CBDC um, to great um, fanfare in the rest of the world, if not within China, within the country itself, is, of course, China, um, which rolled out the um, experiments of the DCEP, or Digital Currency for Electronic Payments, which I will refer to as the DCEP um, earlier this year. And the architecture of the Chinese CBDC, I think, is an interesting one, because if you think about the benefits of a CBDC, in addition to the ones I mentioned, financial inclusion and providing a backstop to the private uh, payments infrastructure, there are potentially other benefits as well. If you were to have um, an account-based CBDC, and especially if it ended up uh, displacing cash, which is not quite um, what is being assumed, but if that were to happen, it would make it a lot easier to implement negative interest rates, negative policy interest rates. It would make literal helicopter drops of money a lot easier. It would pull in a lot of economy, uh, activity from the shadow economy into the formal economy, thereby broadening the tax base, reduce the use of central bank money for um, illicit purposes. 
So there are a variety of potential advantages, but one of the biggest risks, of course, is that um, if people um, and companies had access to uh, CBDC accounts in a time of financial concern or financial panic, they may sweep their money out of commercial bank deposit accounts into CBDC accounts, thereby setting off the very financial stability that a CBDC is trying to preclude. The conception that uh, um, many countries, including China and the Bank of England in a recent paper where it um, talked through the idea of a CBDC, what all these central banks are doing really is something a little different, which is a dual layer architecture where essentially the central bank provides the CBDC to commercial banks just in the way it provides physical cash to commercial banks, which then go out and distribute it. So the digital wallets would be maintained by the commercial banks so on their books, they would have these non-interest bearing CBDC digital wallets in addition to their traditional interest bearing deposit accounts. So this leaves the commercial banks in the game. Uh, and more importantly, from the point of view of the uh, PBOC, it has another advantage, which is that it does not squelch private sector innovation in terms of payment systems. So the CBDC then essentially becomes a sort of token that can um, be mediated across different payment platforms and that the banks can continue to innovate in terms of their payment systems. You could have third party payment systems as well um, where the CBDC um, is, uh, uh, has the feature of interoperability, which means that it can be used across those platforms. Um, so the two major risks of a CBDC, one is that you end up with the um, CBDC account disintermediating banking systems. And second, that you reduce innovation um, by private sector payment providers and private sector financial market participants more broadly. Both of those risks can be managed. So that's what we seem to be moving towards right now, a CBDC that perhaps coexists with cash and where some of the benefits are delivered with the risks being contained. So it's going to be very interesting to watch um, how this all plays out, but certainly the um, uh, demise of cash, while not imminent, especially in the major reserve currency economies, certainly seems to be happening to some extent or the other in practically every economy. So I think um, a CBDC is one way of trying to uh, retain the relevance of central bank retail money. It's where, as you pointed out, that a country like Sweden, just the volume of digital transaction can make cash obsolete, but it still leaves Riksbank in charge of, uh, you know, money creation in the economy. Uh, you know, central bank to commercial bank, you know, reserve issuance has been done through digital means for decades and decades in any case. Um, do you think that domestic payments, you know, we have fairly decent layers of technology in place already, even without a CBDC, whereas cross-border, there are still many inefficiencies in the world and it's costly, that the real promise of CBDC lies in cross-border payments? Or you think that domestic payments can also be revolutionized quite significantly through the CBDC initiatives? I think you're right that in terms of domestic payments, the value of a CBDC um, is open to question. Um, uh, if you take um, a 
advanced economies such as Sweden and um, middle-income countries such as China. And all of these, the payment providers are doing um, just fine in terms of providing low-cost, very efficient services. I think the uh, real question is whether these um, payment providers that do very well in good times are going to um, be as functional in not so good times. And that is the eventuality that I think central banks want to be um, prepared for by having um, a backstop through um, a CBDC. Now, the issue about um, uh, cross-border payments is an interesting one. And um, I think this is where um, Facebook's Libra really plays a very important role in terms of lighting a fire, I think, under central banks. Now, um, till Libra came along, or I mean, Libra has not been officially um, launched yet. Um, they announced the proposal last year and there was a lot of pushback from um, country governments, regulatory authorities. So we had a revised proposal uh, being put up by Libra in uh, April of 2020 with a proposed launch um, by the end of this year, although I haven't seen anything specific about the launch date yet. So um, Libra in its current conception would essentially be a stable coin that would be backed up uh, by a reserve of the relevant um, uh, reserve currency. So you could have a dollar stable coin backed up by a reserve of um, uh, dollar assets, a euro stable coin, and um, perhaps also a multi-currency stable coin backed up by a basket of reserves. And Libra's ostensible purpose is really to make payments both within and across countries very cheap, um, easy, and um, efficient. Um, and I think they have shown um, that there are ways to do this through um, uh, a centralized mechanism. And that raises the question why uh, central banks cannot provide similar channels to do this. And of course, the uh, Monetary Authority of Singapore um, has been conducting experiments with some other central banks around the world, the Bank of Canada, the Bank of um, England, um, to see if there are ways that uh, um, uh, you might be able to create a platform where interbank um, settlement um, can be made more efficient within countries, but also cross-border payments can be made more efficient. And that is an area, um, as much as domestic payments, where I think there is enormous potential uh, for efficiency gains, cost reductions, and so on. Uh, but here again, there is um, a broader philosophical question that I think really comes up in the context of CBDC, whether a national um, entity such as the central, an official entity such as the central bank should be engaged in an activity which the private sector can do perfectly well on its own, uh, given the space to do so. Now, of course, there does seem to be a market failure in terms of international payments because we don't see um, this happening quite yet. So maybe one can think about um, either a domestic CBDC or uh, CBDCs that are interoperable across country platforms is basically providing a spur for the private sector to um, get its act together and start uh, um, doing this. But uh, I think we are facing a variety of conflicting um, uh, um, concerns and tensions of how central banks view their role in economies. They want to remain relevant. They want to um, make sure that there is financial stability. They want to make sure that things like anti-money laundering and combating of financing of terrorism regulations are maintained. But at the same time, they don't want to take on too many functions um, because ultimately this could end up dragging them into areas that they don't really want to be dragged into. So I think this tension is going to continue playing out. But I think ultimately 
having both official and private agencies trying to make uh, payment systems, both domestic and cross-border, more efficient is ultimately going to be good for everyone. It's where uh, we read about the Fed coming up with the Fed now, which is not you know, any major leap toward digital currency, but certainly an attempt toward you know, making even more seamless uh, and interoperable the U.S. domestic financial system. Do you see, I mean, you know, I mean, these days we hear a lot of discussion about universal basic payments, uh, income and so on. But do you see somehow this um, gradual shift, societal demand toward providing people with basic income could somehow converge with this notion of having CBDC accounts for the population? Uh, could these two subjects converge? That convergence is to some extent already happening in some countries. If you think about um, um, the situation in India, for instance, um, linking up the unique ID scheme um, with measures to improve financial inclusion and um, tying that into the cash transfer system for um, uh, government social support programs. Um, we're beginning to see a good deal of momentum there already. And I think um, in the US, for instance, the way the um, COVID uh, stimulus payments worked. Um, you know, many people got money into their bank accounts, but there were about 3 million people who got checks. There were all sorts of problems with the checks. Um, some people thought they were junk mail and got rid of them. There were um, issues with um, getting the checks in the hands of the right persons. I think all of this is creating the sense that we need a better system um, that can link up um, government support programs with um, uh, increase in financial inclusion. And even in the US, um, a significant um, uh, um, or rather a non-trivial number of um, households remain either underbanked or um, uh, really unbanked. So um, I think there are good reasons why this could move forward. In fact, um, in the original coronavirus stimulus bill that came out of the house, the initial version did have a provision suggesting that the Fed um, should aggressively move towards um, setting up uh, um, retail CBDC accounts for U.S. households. That provision did not make it through into the final version of the bill, but there is certainly some support building up in different quarters, including um, at least some members of uh, um, the U.S. Congress um, to push forward with CBDC accounts, which are seen as serving uh, multiplicity of purposes. Such a fascinating subject. Um, it's for, uh, we have to have you back on the show when you get your book published to talk about it in even greater detail. Um, thank you so much for your time. A very insightful discussion, Iswar. Thank you. Thank you, Tamar. It's been a real pleasure and thank you so much for having me on. Thanks to our listeners too. Kopi Time was produced by Martin Taki. It is for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations. All 36 episodes of Copy Time are available on YouTube and on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.